People live frustrated lives because they keep chasing what they think is their calling. The truth is, your calling will chase you. Medical education is my calling. This is Clinical Pearls. Just a couple of podcasts before this one, I summarized a recent ASRM committee opinion about optimizing natural fertility. Remember, that provided guidelines or tips on how a couple can actually time sex in order to try to increase their chance of conception. But for some couples, conception naturally just won't come. And for some, art or assisted reproductive technologies becomes their viable option. Now, thankfully, ART does have a good success rate, but once pregnancies do happen, patients are not off the hook. That's the dilemma, the paradox. While everyone is happy that they finally got their much-desired pregnancy, those pregnancies come with a lot of fine print. It's now well-documented that pregnancies that arise from assisted reproductive technology carry complications not just for the maternal system, but for the fetal and placental compartment as well. So in this podcast, we're going to review the recent SMFM clinical series on following up a pregnancy after artificial reproductive technology, specifically in vitro. This just came out March 2022 in the Gray Journal. Y'all ready? Let's get to the SMFM expert series on how to follow up these art pregnancies now. All right, podcast family, this is SMFM consult series number 60. And before we get into the specific management of these pregnancies, we have to define art, okay? Because there's a lot of confusion and there really shouldn't be because the definition actually hasn't changed since 1992. Although various definitions have been used for art, the definition used by the CDC and ASRM is still based on the 1992 Fertility Clinic Success Rate and Certification Act that requires CDC to publish the annual ART Success Rates Report. So according to this definition, ART, or Assisted Reproductive Technologies, includes all fertility treatments in which eggs or embryos are handled. So in general, ART procedures involve surgically removing a woman's oocytes or eggs from the ovaries and then combining them with sperm through some medium or through some manner. Now, here's an important clinical pearl. This does not include treatments in which only sperm are handled. In other words, intrauterine or artificial insemination techniques like IUIs are procedures that are not classified as art. In short, there's two main types of assisted reproductive technologies. That's in vitro fertilization or IVF with or without intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI. As is stated in the new SMFM console series, IVF is associated with adverse perinatal outcomes, primarily caused by the increased risk of prematurity and low birth weight that's associated with pregnancies that are achieved through IVF. More recent studies and meta-analyses demonstrate that pregnancies achieved with IVF also carry a doubling in the risk for severe maternal morbidity even after controlling for maternal age, parity, and comorbid conditions. 
So the purpose of this consult series is to review what's the best way to actually follow a pregnancy that has resulted after ART because, once again, there's issues both in the maternal, fetal, and even the placental compartments. Well, now that we've established that, let's get into some of the specific subject areas that are covered in this console series. And the first has to do with genetic considerations in these pregnancies that arise after IVF. All right, so here's some good stuff if you're ever asked on the oral boards. Hey, does IVF itself increase the chance of a chromosomal issue? And the answer is, well, yes and no. The IVF procedure itself does not appear to lead to a higher prevalence of chromosomal abnormalities when compared with pregnancies that have happened after natural conception. However, several other factors do play a role in the increased risk for chromosomal anomalies in these pregnancies. These factors include pregnancy at an older age or perhaps in patients who have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Also, oddly enough, severe male and female factor infertility can also be associated with a higher risk for chromosomal abnormalities after ART. Among the approximately 10% of men that are diagnosed with oligospermia or azoospermia without a physical obstruction of the vas, about 8 to 15% will actually carry a microdeletion in the long arm of the Y chromosome. You're like, okay, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, a lot. These findings have implications when ICSI, remember that's intracytoplasmic sperm injection, is performed. Because these chromosomal or gene defects might normally be lost in regular conception or eliminated, but they're not eliminated through the process of ICSI. Other studies report a similar increased rate of de novo chromosomal abnormalities in pregnancies that are achieved with ICSI compared with the reference group of naturally occurring pregnancies. So here's the take-home. IVF procedure itself may not lead to an increased rate of chromosomal issues, but the maternal conditions and the social conditions that arose that required IVF may lead to a higher rate of chromosomal abnormalities. But the procedure of ICSI, that's intracytoplasmic sperm injection, because you don't eliminate the natural removal of these microdeletions, specifically with male factor infertility, ICSI does carry, by procedure itself, an increased risk of chromosomal issues. And lastly, another systematic review and meta-analysis concluded that pregnancies that were achieved with ART when compared with those after natural conception were associated with an increased risk for imprinting disorders. Y'all remember those from genetics? It's been a long time. But imprinting disorders are things like Angelman or Prader-Willi syndrome or Russell-Silver syndrome. Yep, those can be increased as well following ART. So what does the SMFM say about genetic eval in these cases? Well, SMFM recommends that genetic counseling be offered to all patients undergoing or who have undergone IVF with or without ICSI. Now, wait a minute. I know what you may be thinking. Well, don't you do pre-implantation genetic testing before things like IVF? Well, you can for sure. However, SMFM makes it very clear, regardless of whether this pre-genetic testing has been performed, it's recommended that all patients who have achieved pregnancy with IVF be offered the options of prenatal genetic screening and or diagnostic testing via chorionic villi sampling or amniocentesis.
That's a good place for us to mention these screening tests following IVF or ART. Because remember, for genetic evaluation, of course, we have our screening tests and then our diagnostic methods, which are either chorionic venic sampling or CVS or amnio. But you got to keep something in mind when it comes to screening. The accuracy of first trimester genetic screening tests for these aneuploidies may actually be affected by IVF. Studies using cell-free DNA have reported a lower fetal fraction in pregnancies that have arisen from IVF. Perhaps this reflects smaller placental masses. This lower fetal fraction can lead to higher rates of failed cell-free DNA test results compared with pregnancies that arose naturally. But IVF does not appear to be a risk factor for failed results on a repeat cell-free DNA screen, which has an overall success rate of about 53% on repeat draw, according to SMFM. So you can do a repeat draw in these cases because of that possible lower fetal fraction. In short, SMFM states and recommends that the accuracy of first trimester screening tests, including cell-free DNA for aneuploidy, needs to be discussed with these patients undergoing or who have undergone IVF. And remember, it's always an option to offer a true diagnostic test like amnio or CVS. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're moving on and we're going to cover the issue of congenital anomalies following art. Look, these are tough discussions, right? I mean, this poor couple's been struggling with infertility and then goes on to have IVF, which is, you know, no vacation, and then finally gets pregnant. And then we have to have these difficult discussions like, oh, by the way, congratulations on your pregnancy, um, but there may be an increased risk of congenital anomalies. I mean, these are tough discussions. So let's get into what's the best way to evaluate for this now. Well, the data regarding this is not gray. It's pretty clear. Meta-analyses do demonstrate that there are associations between IVF and that's with or without ICSI and congenital malformations, although it still remains unclear if the association is because of the infertility itself or factors associated with the procedure or maybe both. So SMFM recommends that a detailed obstetrical ultrasound be performed for pregnancies that are achieved with IVF or ICSI. Also, a systematic review has reported higher rates of total congenital heart disease in the IVF with or without ICSI population compared to naturally occurring pregnancies. But this is the one issue on congenital heart defects that is controversial because another prospective cohort study found that the rate of congenital heart disease was actually not significantly different from baseline. So remember, total congenital anomalies, yes. Heart congenital anomalies, a little bit more controversial. Nonetheless, and here's the take-home, SMFM does recommend that fetal echo be at least offered to patients with pregnancies that were achieved with either IVF or ICSI. All right, let's move on to issues with the placenta, as if the other issues weren't enough, right? I told you that following ART, there could be complications in all three compartments. That's maternal, fetal, 
and placental. Several placental implantation disorders are more common with IVF. Pregnancies achieved with IVF can be associated with higher rates of abnormal placental shape, like a bilobed placenta or an accessory placental lobe, and that's compared to those that happen after natural conception. Pregnancies achieved by ART also have a higher odds ratio for placenta previa. Singleton pregnancies that happen after IVF also have higher rates of marginal or filamentous cord insertion compared to naturally occurring pregnancies. Now, here's the really big issue. Placenta accreta spectrum has also been reported at higher frequency following IVF, with numerous studies showing an adjusted risk of between 3 and 6 when compared with naturally occurring pregnancies. So IVF should be considered an additional risk factor for accreta in patients with placenta previa and a previous cesarean birth. That's why SMFM recommends that a careful evaluation of the placenta happen by ultrasound, and that includes placental shape and even cord insertion, and that can be done at the time of the usual detailed fetal survey of around 18 to 22 weeks. Also, obviously, please look and rule out placenta previa. All right, we've done genetics. We've done anomalies. We talked about the placenta. What about preterm birth? Well, you all knew that that was an issue, right? I mean, that's nothing new, so... Is there a specific way that we manage pregnancies after ART in that light? Well, the risk for preterm birth is higher in all types of even singleton gestations after assisted reproductive technologies. Now, although there is this increased risk for spontaneous preterm birth, the utility of serial cervical length measurements to screen for preterm birth is actually unknown when the sole indication is IVF. So, what does SMFM say? They say, although visualization of the cervix between 18 and 22 weeks and 6 days should be done as part of the normal anatomical survey, it's not recommended that serial cervical length assessments be done as routine practice for pregnancies that have arisen after IVF if IVF is the only indication. Now, focusing on the fetal compartment, we do have to talk about fetal growth restriction because there is an increased risk for small for gestational age infants that's very well documented for all pregnancies that come after IVF. However, because of this, there's no reason to do serial rate of growth ultrasound in these cases. SMFM suggests that an assessment of fetal growth be performed in the third trimester for pregnancies that were achieved with IVF, but that serial growth ultrasounds are not recommended just for the sole indication of IVF because the data is just not there. Now remember, of course, if there's other indications for growth restriction, which could include obesity or advanced maternal age or chronic hypertension, well, that's a separate issue. But just IVF by itself is not an indication for serial rate of growth ultrasounds. Oh, we're almost done, but we can't leave without talking about low-dose aspirin and the potential for stillbirth. Yep, we're going to leave the worst for the end. But what about low-dose aspirin? Well, IVF and underlying infertility are both associated with adverse perinatal outcomes, and that includes hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Meta-analyses do show an increased risk for preeclampsia in pregnancies that were achieved with IVF from frozen embryo transfer, but not when it happened after fresh embryo transfer. So that's another clinical pearl. If a patient conceived with IVF and then they come to you for care, actually, it does matter whether they used 
frozen embryos or fresh embryos is specifically regarding preeclampsia risk. Well, preeclampsia risk. All right, fine. We've got aspirin for that, right? Well, we do. But aspirin following IVF pregnancy when IVF is the sole indication is just not justified based on data. That's right. A recent meta-analysis actually did not find a significant reduction in the rates of hypertension in pregnancies that were given low-dose aspirin with IVF as the sole indication. So, SMFM states that it's not recommended to use low-dose aspirin for patients with pregnancies achieved with IVF when IVF is the sole indication for preeclampsia prophylaxis. However, IVF has been added to the list of multiple risk factors. In other words, if one or more additional risk factor is present, that's in addition to IVF, then low-dose aspirin is recommended. Okay, this brings us to our last issue, which is the most traumatic. It's stillbirth. Could you imagine? Oh my goodness. I mean, infertility is tough enough. And then the roller coaster ride of artificial reproductive technology. And then they finally get pregnant. And then there's the stillbirth. I mean, look, guys, I know it happens devastating, devastating. And it's happened in our practice. I mean, all stillbirths are heartbreaking, but there's another layer of sorrow in these settings. Pregnancies achieved with IVF have a two to threefold increased risk for stillbirth, even after controlling for maternal age, parity, and multifetal gestation. So currently, both ACOG and SMFM state that given the increased risk for stillbirth, it's strongly recommended to begin weekly antepartum fetal surveillance beginning at 36 weeks of pregnancy for those achieved following in vitro fertilization. And as our final thought, as it relates to care of pregnancies after ART, specifically regarding stillbirth risk, I mean, wouldn't you think, well, let's just get out at 39 weeks. I mean, my goodness, if we make it to 39 weeks following IVF, then let's just get out. We already have the ARRIVE trial. Well, that's my stance, but is that the stance of SMFM? Well, not necessarily. SMFM states it's currently unknown whether elective delivery at 39 weeks reduces the risk of maternal morbidity and improves perinatal outcomes in pregnancies that were achieved with IVF compared to expected management. So as of March of 2022, SMFM states, quote, in the absence of studies focused specifically on timing of delivery for pregnancies achieved with IVF, it's recommended to have shared decision-making between patients and healthcare providers when considering induction of labor at 39 weeks, end quote. Well, for me, that means 39 weeks is definitely an option. All right, podcast family, we did it. We've summarized and highlighted the main points of SMFM's new console series, number 60. That's 6-0 from March of 2022. It was published in the American Journal of OBGYN. As always, we're thankful for you. Keep listening and keep spreading the word about Clinical Pearls because as we said before, we're always seeking growth. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.